Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and I cover all eras of films, not just films of the 1980s. You can read them all there, and I do encourage you, while you are there, to click the link to my other podcast. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I cover new movies that are currently out in theater or VOD or streaming services or wherever you take in your new films. Check for the link at that website, quipster.net. Today, we're going to conclude the three-part series looking at commandos in films of the 1980s. Did Predator, Commando following that, of course. Those were, I guess they were Green Beret movies. This one going to be taking off in a little bit different direction for an Army Special Forces unit called The Delta Force. The Delta Force is a film from 1986. It stars Chuck Norris. It's a PG-13 rated film. It does have strong violence and some language. The runtime is two hours and five minutes. Lee Marvin gets a co-starring credit. Robert Forrester, George Kennedy, Martin Balsam, Joey Bishop, Lenny Kazan, Bo Svensson, Robert Vaughn, and Shelley Winters are also in the film. The director is Menachem Golan, who also writes the screenplay along with James Bruner. Now, originally, the Delta Force, which is the name of the Special Forces Commando Unit that's specifically tasked with dealing with combating international terrorists and also hostage situations, this was going to be a film that featured both Chuck Norris and another heavyweight for Canon Films, Charles Bronson. They were going to star together. Joseph Zito, who had made one of the Canon Group's most successful films at the box office to date, that was Missing in Action, which also featured Chuck Norris. He was going to be the director. Now, Norris came up with the story idea while he was making Missing in Action. He had started becoming frustrated that the United States was becoming ineffectual in its response to terrorism from the Middle East, and that was making us a sort of paper tiger there. And he felt that, you know, maybe rightly, I guess, in retrospect, depending on your political point of view, that it was only a matter of time that terrorism would end up surfacing in the free and open society of the United States if it wasn't taken care of with a lot of force now. Now, for Chuck Norris, who signed on to the film for the healthy sum of $2 million, the Delta Force would end up marking the first time that he would be in a film with an ensemble of respected Oscar-winning and Oscar-nominated character actors all around him. It was meant as a vehicle that was going to cross Norris over from making really pure action movies to a little bit more mainstream efforts, a lot like Clint Eastwood had done in the 1970s. However, there was a delay in the production for several months. There was unrest in the Middle East that was kicking up at the time, and that made filming in Israel, which is where a lot of the action here is set, even though it has different locales, it was all shot in Israel, it was pretty risky to shoot there. So there was an interim period where veteran actor Lee Marvin ended up having to come in. He was replacing Charles Bronson because during that time, Charles Bronson had begun working on another acting commitment that he had made in order to appear in a movie that was being made for HBO called Act of Vengeance. So here, playing Delta Force leader Nick Alexander, this would be Lee Marvin's final film role. He would die not too long after shooting the Delta Force. Joseph Zito would also end up dropping out of the production, and that brought in producer and the co-writer of the film, Menahem Golan. He would step in himself into the director's chair. Now, Zito would end up getting to do his own version of a Delta Force film in the year 2000, much later, 
with an unrelated film called Delta Force One. That film happened to star the son of Chuck Norris, Mike, who also happened to co-star in one of the sequels to Delta Force, 1991's Delta Force Three, and he was playing a different character there than the one he did in Delta Force One. If you're a Norris family fan, I guess you got to catch all of these. The opening sequence of the film does take inspiration from the real-life U.S.-ordered military operation called Operation Eagle Claw. It was a botched attempt by America's Delta Force to rescue, in helicopters, the 53 hostages that were in the American embassy in Tehran in 1980. This film puts a lot of the blame in this reenactment on decisions made by government bureaucrats who know very little about tactical operations. The rest of the film is based mostly around this also real-life event that happened in June of 1985. It was the hijacking of TWA Flight 847. The name of the airline for the film was changed to ATW, American Travelways. TWA Flight 847 was the first such hijacking to occur in the Middle East in about 15 years, so it was very newsworthy at the time. A lot of what you see in the film is relatively faithful to some of those real-life events. You had a terrorist group hijacking the airplane containing mostly Americans that was going from Athens to Rome. They ended up forcing it to land in an airport in Beirut. The Jewish passengers were separated from the rest. The terrorists had help from a German flight attendant who reluctantly looked through passports to try to determine which of the names were Jewish. The tragic fate of a U.S. Navy diver who was a passenger aboard is also accurately portrayed in the Delta Force. However, for all of that, this is Hollywood, and asses need to be kicked. In real life, the hostages were released by the terrorists over the course of a few weeks, Israel complied with the demands to release 700 Shia prisoners at that time, and most of the hijackers ended up getting away because they had scattered hostages to different places around Beirut, and that thwarted any form of concentrated rescue attempt that was going to be made. The Operation Eagle Claw beginning of this film was also conceived of as the entire plot of the film. That was going to be the entire film, but Canon didn't think that it was going to sell if it didn't have an uplifting ending, so they set about working on a Delta Force mission that Americans would cheer on. And they were also willing to change Operation Eagle Claw to have a happy ending, if you can believe that. They wanted the mission to be one in which Delta Force would actually succeed in their mission. Now, the change toward an entirely fantasy land scenario caused the founder of the real Delta Force, Charles Alvin Beckwith, to walk away from his role as a consultant to the film. In the end, the makers of the Delta Force opted to portray Eagle Claw as a tragedy in this preamble to the hijacking story in which they were going to tack on the optimistic but fabricated action-packed ending. They were going to place that there in order to give American audiences something to root for. Now, in addition to taking events from the 1985 hijacking of the TWA flight, Menachem Golan also drew inspiration from this film he had done before, the Oscar-nominated 1977 film Operation Thunderbolt. That was also based on an actual event that happened in 1976 where Israeli commandos secured the release of Jewish hostages from a flight hijacked from Palestinian terrorists in an airport in Uganda. Now, this fictionalized film version delivers a typical Hollywood therapy of these harrowing events. You know, it's very melodramatic in the way that it's depicted in the first half. In the final half of the film, that starts to imagine calling in the Americans in the form of the Delta Force, who proceed to dismantle this operation and to give the terrorists the kind of proper comeuppance that seems to only happen at the end of heroic and ultra-patriotic action movies like this. 
The film's ending has all of the passengers singing America the Beautiful, with all of them knowing the words to the song, despite only some of them being from the United States. This is wish fulfillment at its finest, and from that standpoint, it's the kind of film that seems to have been extracted from Ronald Reagan's wettest of dreams. Now, Golan's film here is the result of having two notions of what the film should be. One half is the serious melodrama that occurs for the passengers of the ATW flight who now find themselves as hostages. Well, obviously, all of that is still a bit stagey from a narrative standpoint. These scenes do provide a somber and grounded approach that seems particularly incongruous with the second half of the film in which Delta Force proceeds to come in with guns ablaze, kicking ass, and taking names, all accompanied by Alan Silvestri's repetitive but admittedly catchy score that was meant to evoke pomp and patriotism. By the way, that score, which I played as the intro to this particular podcast episode, it would later be used by ABC Sports on television in the 1980s and throughout most of the 1990s to introduce the broadcasts of the Indianapolis 500. The main thrust of the story here is that Delta Force is full of elite soldiers that are not utilized to their effectiveness due to having to take orders from government bureaucrats. And once they're given the green light to do their thing, there is no other force on Earth capable of stopping them. And while violent and played without a lot of humor, this is meant to get audiences amped and cheering, but, you know, it does seem out of place to the buildup. It's kind of laughable in that respect when you view it with any kind of objectivity, especially with the distance of time to some of the events from which this film is inspired. Now, the Delta Force is mostly devoid of any attempts for intentional jokes. There was an instance in this film of Chuck Norris tossing out a James Bond-worthy one-liner during this kill as he shoots a terrorist who is hiding under a bed while telling him, sleep tight, sucker. The James Bond influence kind of extends also into a few gadget-oriented weapons. Chuck Norris's motorcycle was outfitted with a couple of front-facing rocket launchers, and he also has these rear-facing grenade launchers that are all triggered from the handlebars. You know, it's serious business the rest of the way. It's not exactly grounded in that respect. The Delta Force engages frequently into Hollywood action blockbuster antics that has them shooting up a lot of the sets before blowing them up with reckless abandon. Now, Canon would end up giving the film a budget of about $10 million, pretty modest, but it would still be the largest film made in Israel up to that point. It featured a crew of over 200 people working on it. Thousands of extras were employed. And uh, location, Israel's Ben-Gurion Airport, being used for weeks in order to shoot the film in a variety of capacities. Golan would end up seeking the assistance of the Israeli military and members of the United States Special Forces in order to lend some authenticity to these anti-terrorist procedures that are depicted within the film, even though a lot of it does still strain credibility if you take it from an action extravaganza standpoint. The Delta Force was the second in this multi-picture deal between Chuck Norris and Canon Films. Norris, while he is undoubtedly a skilled physical performer, he does occasionally seem out of place. He has kind of a shaggier mane and his beard. It doesn't jibe with the rest of the military here. He's also kind of bland as an actor. Sorry, Chuck Norris fans. He only really comes to life when he gets to deliver a kick or two in a bad guy's direction. Even then, Norris stands out so much from the others, it's really hard to consider him as part of this elite team rather than an individualistic super soldier who just happens to come along for the ride. 
Chuck Norris would end up calling the film a cathartic experience, not only for him, but he felt that many in the audience in the United States would appreciate the Delta Force as this way to release the tension and the anxiety that we felt about the escalating threat of terrorism and the United States' position in the world. This was meant to send a message that the United States can and should be kicking butt instead of taking demands from terrorists whenever they end up taking hostages. Now, Lee Marvin here, he fits in better as this seasoned leader of the team. However, during the making of the film, he was obviously ailing. He had complications, a hard life of smoking and hard drinking. He really could not perform much in terms of any kind of physical feats. He signed on to do the Delta Force after a 15-minute pitch was delivered over the phone. Cannon was willing to give him the money up front, and he ended up accepting it. He also thought it would get him out of the house and his mind off of his various health issues. But he still had trouble moving around. His role also had been pared down, not only because of his health issues, but the departure of Charles Bronson meant that there wasn't that big marquee star. Even though Lee Marvin was very well known, he wasn't quite the box office draw in the mid-1980s that he had once been in the 60s. The veteran actor, he does get very few chances here to really stand out. And he gets further eclipsed by the dynamic presence of Chuck Norris doing most of the fighting. Further curious casting would also see giving roles to some very famous and respected at that time personalities. Putting in George Kennedy and Shelley Winters kind of harkens back to the disaster movies of the 1970s, whether that was intentional or unintentional. I guess there were two of the most popular go-to actors for this kind of film. Unfortunately, such a Hollywoodization of these kinds of events, it does diffuse the tension. You have components here that constantly remind us that we're watching a movie instead of trying to take this in as things that actually happen because they did actually happen. Now, Robert Forster here, he plays the main bad guy. He's the main Lebanese terrorist. He does deliver, admittedly, a dedicated performance. He's good in the role, if you want to take it from that standpoint. It never strays into becoming something as cartoonish as some of the other action scenes. But he is such a known presence that even if you try to take him as trying to play something that's really out of his character, this Lebanese terrorist, he never quite is able to disappear into the role for anybody who knows Robert Forster from many of his other films. Now, the Delta Force would garner some protests at the time, as you can imagine, from the Arab-American community in the United States who accused Menahem Golan and the Cannon Group of making a pro-Israel, anti-Arab propaganda film and for further pushing forward harmful stereotypes about Arabs. Golan would go on to the defense. He would go on to claim that his film was not meant to be anti-Arab at all, but anti-terrorist, and the terrorists just happened to be Arab. Along these lines, to his defense a little bit here, the terrorists are not written to be purely evil. They are given moments where they exhibit a connection or some compassion for their hostages, such as a young girl, or for their particular religious faith, even if they specifically do target Jewish men here. But still, to take the other position, you know, Golan downplays this a lot, but the film does serve, whether intentionally or unintentionally, as subversive propaganda. It has a strong theme that suggests that fighting Islamic terrorists is the duty for all red-blooded Americans and Christians. George Kennedy's Catholic priest character says he's Jewish at some point, like Jesus, to try to connect the plight of Israel with the plight of Christians in the United States, all as one. They need to combat 
the Muslim terrorists of the world. Now, this film does not give a clear voice at all to the nature of or the reasons for the demands of the terrorists. It relegates most of their motives toward just this hatred of Israel or baked-in hatred of the United States because of past misdeeds, I suppose. Now, despite a few detractors here, the Delta Force would prove to be a lucrative deal for Canada. It debuted at number three at the U.S. box office, and it ended up racking up $17 million domestically off of that $10 million budget. However, time has not been as kind for the film overall. You know, mostly this film would appeal today for huge fans of Chuck Norris, not a lot of people beyond that, unless you just happen to be a Lee Marvin completist or you just want to see something from the 1980s that very much evokes the political stances of films at the time, I suppose, from that point of view. It does merit some interest, but unless you're a huge Chuck Norris fan, I don't know that I would recommend this beyond that a lot. It's more than a bit dated by today's standards. It, it does have this very jingoistic portrayal of the Army's special forces and its rah-rah attitude toward American might. It doesn't quite jibe with a lot of the films made today. I mean, half of the movie seems like a G.I. Joe cartoon come to life. In fact, it's the kind of movie that would be endlessly spoofed nowadays, especially if you've ever seen Team America World Police and its America F yeah attitude. Whenever you see the soldiers on the screen, it completely evokes... That same thing. In fact, you know, Team America World Police almost seems like a funny version of this film. Now, in the 1980s, a lot of these films were commonplace. They haven't aged as well due to the unabashed nature of trying to jazz audiences up into pumping their fists to root for these wholly self-satisfying gratification of our desire to see an all-American hero like Chuck Norris kick the snot out of any and all evildoers of the world without even breaking a sweat. So... Very dated from that standpoint, and I don't think it's a bad film. In fact, I think it is a respectable film for the most part, at least for the first half. But really, it's for the second half that a lot of people are viewing this film. So it's a weird mishmash. I think if you're going to watch this film because you want to see Chuck Norris kick butt, you're going to have to wait a long time for all of the dramatized events. Uh, that may or may not make you impatient. And for those people who get sucked into the events of the first half of the film, because it is played relatively realistically, I mean, obviously it's a movie, but it does stay grounded, it's going to seem completely out of place what you see once the Delta Force is employed in terms of getting this rescue mission going, because it just goes way over the top. So it's a real mixed bag of a movie some really good aspects to it, and then some that are just kind of corny and laughable, but in a way that I think you can still have fun with. And for all of that, I'm going to be a little bit generous for this film because I don't think it's a half-bad film. I'm going to give it two and a half stars out of four. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that it had the tools, it had the talent to be an actual good film, or at least one I would recommend to most people. But what it's really lacking here is that clear vision in mind of what kind of movie that they wanted to make. I think if they went wholly one way or another, I gave a recommendation to Commando on the previous episode for delivering the kind of film that you see in the last half of this movie. If they had done it all the way through and kept that consistent tone, perhaps I would be much more in tune with it. Or conversely, if they had done the somber, realistic depiction of these events, I probably would have been very forgiving of a lot of that as well, even if it took some liberties. But putting these two great tastes that don't quite taste great together... I can't quite give it my recommendation, despite some of those fine moments. So two and a half stars out of four is the best I can give. The Delta Force. 
Now, a lot of people do refer to this strictly as Delta Force, but it is actually called the Delta Force. However, it would drop the the for its sequels. Two sequels would end up resulting. In 1990, there was Delta Force 2, The Columbian Connection, that did return Chuck Norris. Unfortunately, Lee Marvin was not available for the aforementioned reasons for that one. And then they ended up following that up the following year with the Chuck Norris-less Delta Force 3, The Killing Game. Now, prior to his passing, Menachem Golan had been in talks in as late as 2014 about making a fourth film in the series, but unfortunately for Delta Force fans, that never quite resulted. But you can see those other films that feature Delta Force are very much carbon copies of this film. So in a way, there are sequels out there just unofficially. Like I mentioned, Delta Force 1 earlier in this episode. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts on the Delta Force, if you're a huge fan of this, or maybe you watch this film and you probably think this is a really terrible movie or a terribly dated example of a 1980s film, any thoughts you have, you can write to me. You can find my contact information all at my website. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. They're all acceptable ways to get in touch with me. Go to quipster.net for all the details. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as what I'm going to be covering for the next trilogy of films, it is a trilogy, and it did come out in the 1980s. A lot of it influenced the three commando films that I just talked about, kind of set the table for a lot of these movies to come out. I'm going to start with 1982's First Blood, the very first Rambo film. Kind of appropriate considering that the new Rambo film, Last Blood, is going to be coming out in theaters while I'm talking about these films. So if you haven't checked that out in a while, if you haven't seen it at all, I do encourage you to watch 1982's First Blood with Sylvester Stallone, Richard Crenna, and a whole lot more. A very influential film and a big hit in the 1980s. Sylvester Stallone, and that will be our very next review. So until then, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Oh.